Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marts and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome everybody to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is episode number 158 and my guest this week is my friend Michael Welker. Michael recently published his very first book, and I couldn't be any more happy for him, nor can I can I be uh, I couldn't be any more proud of him, because uh, Michael and I I've known Michael for well over a decade. He and I first met through our mutual friend and mentor, S. K. Murphy. Uh, you guys have heard me talk about Kay many times before on this podcast. She was my very first English teacher when I was a when I was a freshman in college. And she is a uh, she. She will forever and always uh, be the teacher who first encouraged me to become a writer. So, uh, for anybody who, uh, who who's a fan of of the work that I do, you owe a, a great big debt of gratitude to S. K. Murphy. But here's the thing: it's not just me. S. K. Murphy has also inspired Michael Welker to be a to be a writer, because uh, like me. He was uh, one of her students, although not in college. It was in, in, in high school. So when I first met Michael, it was actually at Kay's house because uh, once upon a time, Kay used to host movie nights once a week. I believe they were on Wednesday nights, usually during the summer when she wasn't teaching. And uh, I would be there and Chanel would be there. And uh, sometimes I would take uh, maybe one of my friends over. And then Kay, of course, would invite some of her friends over. And uh, and one of those friends was Michael Welker, who was uh, who was her high school student, and he was he was very nice. The first time I met Michael, he was very nice, soft spoken, a bit shy, and honestly, he reminded me a lot of myself. And Kay even she even said as much. You know, over the years, kind of told me that that uh, she saw a lot of similarities in uh, in, in Michael and myself. So I I wasn't surprised at all when a few years ago he told me that he was working on what would become his first book, and it's a nonfiction book and it's a book uh, it's a book about the craft of storytelling. Now, purely by coincidence, I had just started doing this podcast around the time that Michael had uh, first started working on his book. So so when he when he he sent me an email. Because uh, he was actually living out of the country, he was living in Japan at the time, uh, living and working in Japan, and so he he uh, he let me know he was working on this book, and then he also let me know that he uh, he'd been listening to the podcast. And in fact, uh, after episode one came out, uh, Michael was probably the very first person to to contact me and congratulate me on the show and and tell me how much he enjoyed it. And, and over the years, he's been truly one of the biggest supporters of of the show and uh and it means so much to me so so i i told him you know several years ago that uh, i would love to have him on the show just you know just to just to talk to him because i you know because uh uh partly because he's just extremely smart and and interesting and and uh and i figured he would just be it would, it would be fun to have 
somebody on the show who was who was a genuine fan of the show. But also, I figured we could talk about the book that he was he was working on. So, so he asked. Uh, he, he definitely wanted to be on the show. So he asked if, when he published his book, he could come on. So, of course, I said absolutely. Uh, and so that was a few years ago. So, so in this year, January twenty third, twenty seventeen, Michael finally published his first book, and I'm so happy for him, and I'm so excited for him. The book it's called Blockbuster Blueprint. A step-by-step guide to crafting a best-selling story, and so Michael contacted me again uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, he had recently come back to the states from uh, from from living in, and working in Japan, and he kind of let me know that he was actually getting ready to to go to to go live and work in in China, but he had a small window where he would be in uh, in, in the U.S. before he took off on his next adventure. And so he was hoping that during that small window of time, he could come on and do the podcast. So I told him, absolutely. So he let me know that he was planning a trip to Las Vegas. Um, uh, honestly, if I'm not mistaken, he, he was planning the trip specifically to, to be on the podcast. So uh, so he was kind of literally going way out of his way to, to come be on the show, which, uh, which actually meant a, a whole lot to me. So his book. His book, like I said, came out January twenty third, two thousand and seventeen. Uh, two thousand and seventeen. I can't get the year right, but I'll get the title right. Blockbuster Blueprint. In his book, Michael uncovers the hidden formula that all blockbuster movies and novels follow. But it's not just another storytelling how-to book. Blockbuster Blueprint is all about modern, commercially successful stories and how they work. So if you've ever looked at hit stories like Harry Potter, Star Wars, and The Hunger Games, and you've also wondered how they do it, which honestly, I, I wonder that <laughs> all the time, well, then Michael Welker's book is just the thing for you. Because in Blockbuster Blueprint, Michael talks about how to create a compelling cast of characters, how character arcs really work, how to build rich story worlds, how to use plot devices that don't suck, and how to plot your story with the most complete beat-by-beat breakdown of the classic three-act structure out there. So so during my conversation with Michael, we cover a, a whole lot of ground, including how Blockbuster Blueprint reveals the secret patterns found in all blockbusters. So if, if you are a fan of movies and novels and video games and comic books, or you're actually somebody who, who hopes to be a, a writer and a creator and a storyteller yourself... I promise you, you do not want to miss this conversation that I that, that, that I had with my friend Michael Welker. Also, you really need to get yourself a copy of his book, Blockbuster Blueprint. It really is a terrific book, and I, I just couldn't be more proud of him. So, so do yourself a favor, maybe even pause this episode right this very second, and go to Amazon.com. But before you go to Amazon.com, first go to the official website of this podcast, which you'll find at martinlestrapsshow.com once you get there go to the shop page at the top of the shop page you're going to see an Amazon banner click that banner it's going to take you to Amazon and you can do all the same shopping you were otherwise going to do including getting yourself a copy of Michael's book Blockbuster Blueprint and because you went through the official website of this podcast Amazon in turn will kick back a few pennies our way and then we get to take those pennies and reinvest them back into the show which allows us to make the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour as good as we can possibly make it for you, which we strive to do week after week 
after week. Also, by the way, when you go to Amazon and you look at Michael's book, Blockbuster Blueprint, it won't actually say Michael Welker. So uh, it, it's M.L. Welker. Is, is a, It's going to be the title on the book. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Michael told me there was at least one, if not several other Michael Welkers who had who, who published books. So, um, so his official author name is M.L. Welker. Also, after you go to Amazon and buy Michael's book, Blockbuster Blueprint, go ahead and subscribe uh, Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, if you're not already subscribed. Uh, it, it's free, and every week a new episode magically drops into your iTunes list, which I'm happy to do for you. All you have to do is subscribe, and then it's just like magic. Poof. My gift to you. If you're not an iTunes listener, that's cool. You can also catch the show on Stitcher Radio, which you'll find at stitcher.com. It's also free. And if neither of those options does it for you, then of course there's always the old-fashioned way, which is listening to every episode on martinlestrapshow.com, where all 158 episodes, including this week's episode with Michael Welker, are available to you. So, there it is. I'm actually quite anxious to share this conversation with you because I had just a wonderful time talking to my friend Michael Welker. So, if that all sounds good to you, then let's move on with the show. Well, I was born in Lee in the uh, Inland Empire, you know, much like yourself. Um, and uh, it's not until you start expanding outside of the Inland Empire that you realize uh, a lot of people either don't know where that is and they wonder, you know, do you have an emperor? <laughs> um, and at, at, at the same time, at, at least when... And, and I'm not sure how much of it applies to um, to populations or... or demographic groups outside of like high school kids mm -hmm. but i know uh while in high school there was kind of this uh the the area code used for um uh phone numbers for the inland empire were kind of a, a derogatory like <laughs> slur for like oh you live in the 909 uh -huh. um so it, it it was definitely uh you know humble beginnings if if, if you will um the and and i never really felt at home in the in the inland empire um it always felt to me like i was just kind of out of place um and so it, it really wasn't until uh i got to college that i really kind of felt at, at home because uh, even even in in high school it was it was not something um that i that man i'm struggling to articulate what i'm trying to say here but it and, and I, I guess really for, for me, um, kind of putting the pieces together, like they didn't really come together until I got to college. Um, and up to that point, um, I school was just sort of this detour thing. Because mm -hmm. really early on, uh, I think it was the summer between second grade and third grade uh, was when everything changed for me. Because uh, as, as a little kid, um, I had a, a couple of um, deep passions. The, the, the two big ones were movies and video games. Um, when I was really young, I discovered Indiana Jones and Star Wars and absolutely fell in love with uh, being, you know, transported to these fictional worlds. Uh, and then I got a hand-me-down uh, Nintendo Entertainment System when I was really little. I, I, I can't even remember what age I, I was so young. Um, and I, rem I remember spending so much time playing Super Mario Brothers and, you know, uh, there was a really great Ninja Turtles game for the original NES. Um, and 
having a similar but different experience there that wasn't quite as curated as movies were, but you were kind of like creating your own adventure as you know you played through because you have so much more agency in a video game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two things were a huge influence on me, and I knew um, that these were things that I really liked and that were a lot more interesting to me than than, than school was. Even though I was a really good student, uh, you know, all of my teachers were r- really happy with me as a student, and um, my parents who were constantly um, instilling in me, you know, do do really good in school, get get really good grades, go to college, get a good job, so on and so forth. Uh, and and I, I did all that, and it was pretty easy. Like, it wasn't that challenging for, for me to do that. And so school for a long time just kind of seemed um, really, like, boring and not challenging. And I knew, uh, so, so kind of jumping back, the summer between second grade and third grade, um, having this love of, of, of movies, um, but not really seeing anything past that, um, I went and saw a movie that just completely changed my life. And it, it might sound a, a, a little cheesy, but uh, it was Jurassic Park. <laughs> That's um, not cheesy. It, and, and that movie was just incredible to me because as in, in addition to, you know, video games and movies, I've also been kind of like a nature file my entire life. And so dinosaurs have been like the most fascinating thing ever, um, especially as, as a little kid. I was just obsessed with them. I, I couldn't believe that there was a point in time where these like giant, you know, reptilian creatures ruled the planet for millions of years. And, you know, humans have only uh, conquered the planet for, you know, a few tens of thousands. And so these creatures, you know, had ruled our world for, you know, this extended period of time and and now they were gone. Um, And so I was always fascinated with them, but my assumption was that um, the best I was ever going to, 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 to get was, uh, artists, you know, re reimaginings of you know what these creatures might look like in picture books, and going to the museums and seeing skeletons, and so I was completely blown away when I walked out of that theater, um, having had the experience of you know that Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg had created, and and also the special effects wizards, you know, Dennis Muir and, and uh, Stan Winston, um, of basically bringing dinosaurs back to life in a way that just completely captured my attention and my imagination and I walked out of that theater going wow I didn't know this was possible I want to do for other people what they just did for Mm -hmm. me and so that kind of began this quest pretty at a pretty young age that you know Steven Spielberg and you know Michael Crichton became these um these heroes of of mine and and also up to that point I really hadn't been um a a real strong reader um I've always been and even to this day, I'm actually a really slow reader. Um, I, I've got pretty high retention, but in terms of like actual reading speed, it takes me an absolute eternity to read books, um, which makes me have to be very selective with you know what I end up reading. Um, but I, I know uh, after seeing Jurassic Park, um, I wanted to read the book, mm-hmm. and I know my parents were kind of trying to prep me a little bit, like, well, you know, that's a that's a very serious book. That's you know. <laughs> are you sure you don't want to read like Goosebumps or I'm like? No, I really want to re- read Jurassic Park. And I remember uh, it was super challenging. Like I, I don't think I understood most of what I was reading, uh, but it was definitely a very formative experience for me. Um, it, you know, reading uh, Jurassic Park and just challenging myself to be able to comprehend what was in there. And and also it was kind of a revelation in that it's quite a bit different than the movie. And I was really surprised that there were so many things in the book that weren't in the movie and a lot of things that were in the book um, that were uh, really interesting in, in the way that I didn't see it in the movie, but the book was kind of creating this. And, and you've talked about this before, 
creating this movie in my head, um, which kind of just extended the experience. So I got like even more Jurassic Park than than I had originally bargained for. Um, and so from that early age, I started um, spending a lot more time writing stories and uh, borrowing my uh, grandmother's camcorder and making uh, stop motion animation film with my um, action figures. Um, and I just became absolutely obsessed with knowing how movies worked, uh, how to make them, and how to capture that magic that I had experienced, um, that, you know, that summer in, in 1993. And um, and then something kind kind of uh, like unexpected happens from there. It, it seems pretty like A to B to C. Like okay, this moment of inspiration. I want to be a filmmaker. I study the craft of film and then become a filmmaker. Um, but by the time I got to college, uh, things started to, sh- or not, not to college, to high school, things started to shift a little bit uh, in that my, my parents and family, everybody, everybody had been so super supportive of, you know, my dream of becoming a, a filmmaker, which was awesome. Um, I, I couldn't, you know, I, I can't thank them enough for being so supportive. Um, but there was sort of this moment um, as high school was coming to a close and college years were approaching that there was a little bit more encouragement, a little bit more nudging towards like, you know, just in case the film thing doesn't work out, maybe, you know, go to a, a university and get a, a degree just in case. Um, and so I, I ended up um, kind of from that point on taking like a huge detour because originally I didn't even want to go to college. I was like, well, you know, Steven Spielberg didn't go to college. Uh, Quentin Tarantino didn't even go to high school. Like, you know, he dropped out in middle school. You, you don't have to go to uh, film school or college to become a, a great filmmaker. You just don't need to do that. And so, and, and because my history with, uh, school up to that point had been, this isn't challenging. This is really boring. I, I'm really passionate about this thing over here, you know, film and movies. So why would I waste my time with this? Um, but for, uh, and, and, and thankfully, um, you know, um, saner heads prevailed and I, I listened to a lot of my, you know, mentors and um, uh, and parents and friends and family. And I, I apply. I, I actually only applied to two schools. Um, and as also too, because this was like, as a first generation college student, I had like no clue what I was doing the mm-hmm. entire time. I had um, n- no idea what college was about, and I didn't even know you were supposed to like take take out a list of schools and and you know research them and then go <laughs> visit them and determine like, oh yeah, I think I could go here. Uh, so all, all I really ended up doing was I just picked the two like closest universities, applied to both of them, um, and then got into both of them. And I was planning on going to uh, UC Riverside, uh, but then my grandmother um, was like, "Oh, you should go to Irvine. That's a slightly better school. You, sh- you should go there." So I said, "Okay." And my first day on campus was my first day of school. So like I had, I just showed up <laughs> sight unseen, had no idea what what to expect. Um, and then, and, 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 you know, UCI is not at all known for film or video. Um, they, they do have a film program there. Uh, and after kind of waffling a little while um, in various other disciplines, I think I, I entered the university as a math major, and I have no idea why, because I am terrible at math. <laughs> like, there's a very specific subset of math that I'm pretty good at that comes naturally to me, which is geometry. But I think that's just because, as a kid, like, I like to draw a lot. Um, but... It, so, so I have no idea how I got into the university as a math major. And immediately before I took any classes, I switched out. I switched to, I think, undecided, undeclared. Um, and then I kind of sampled a couple different things. And then when I found that um, they had a film studies program, I switched into that. 
Um, but I was only there for about a quarter because the very first day of class, my, um, and th this was like the introduction, you know, uh, film studies 101, b b uh, very beginning course prepping you for everything else that, that's to come after that. Uh, and, and on the first day, the first <clears throat> moments of the class, the professor walks out on stage and uh, introduces herself and starts saying like, oh, okay, you know, here's, uh, and she starts naming off these, these filmmakers, like, you know, Steven Spielberg. And I'm going, yeah, George <laughs> Lucas, yeah. Uh, and she just starts naming off all the all these heroes of mine and then go, and then there's a long pause and she goes, they're all hacks. They're all thieves. They've all, <laughs> and just starts like completely trashing all, all these heroes of mine. And it was from, you know, that, that moment that I knew, okay, this is completely not the program for me. Um, and I, because I was already in, invested in the, the program and I had already declared my major, I, 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 stuck, I, I stayed in, in the course and, uh, with the hope that it would get better. Um, and it, it was a completely different experience than what I was anticipating because it was much more about the art of uh, film and cinema, uh, which is great. I mean, that stuff is very fascinating and interesting, but it was not at all what I personally was interested in. For me, the appeal had always been um, the commercial blockbuster, right? Mm -hmm. Like Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Jurassic Park. Um, as, um, as artistic and important um, culturally as films like On the Waterfront are, they just didn't have that, they didn't, they didn't ignite that passion in me. Mm -hmm. And so I can totally appreciate them. In fact, I did, um, like one of the papers that I wrote uh, at university was about on the waterfront and the impact that it had at the time during you know the like the the red scare and Eli Kazan having to actually having actually named names during um the congressional hearings um so all that stuff's really fascinating but for me that was never the draw of of movies and and cinema it was always about escapism um and the and and the stuff that is in, in some ways kind of frowned upon because it's like, oh, the, it, it's the sellout, you know, uh, c commercialized stuff, right? But that's the stuff that, that had always appealed to me, and that's the stuff that I always enjoyed the most. And I think in, in some regards, it's the simplicity of it that makes it so accessible, um, and that it's not so heavy. I think, at least for me, the real world is heavy enough, mm -hmm. and I really appreciate fiction and um, cinema and video games in in the sense that they can kind of help you get away from all of that. Absolutely. There was okay, so I've been thinking about this a lot lately and what you're talking about right now in terms of the uh the cult well the cultural value of of blockbuster sort of mainstream movies um but also just the overall value of their their generally speaking by and large the more entertaining movies, the more audience friendly movies. And so I, I also, um, similar to you, I, uh, and, and I love movies in general from the, the popcorn movies to the very serious indie art films, as long as, as long as it's, you know, I mean, I don't even, this is a generic statement, but as long as I enjoy it, like, um, I think there was definitely a time when I was probably a young adult, probably in college where I sort of felt like maybe there were certain movies I was supposed to enjoy, or if I was at a movie, and it was maybe like an art film, and I was bored. I would sort of, I would sort of convince myself, well, it's boring, but that's what makes it good, or just some stupid nonsense like that. But but then eventually, I got to where where you are, which is just like, I just want to enjoy my experience. And if I'm enjoying, you know, if I'm enjoying uh, watching the, the the new Wolverine movie more than I'm going to enjoy watching 
Um, I don't know. For some reason, I'm thinking of Schindler's List, but I've never seen it. So that's not fair. Um, I would I would just as soon watch a movie with Batman in it than, than not have Batman in it. But that said, uh, there's this very interesting dynamic with the with the Academy Awards, which I enjoy. I, enjoy, I love the I love everything about the Academy Awards to the point where I podcast about it for weeks at a time when it's happening. But uh, the television ratings, generally speaking, um, aren't. I mean, like more people are going to watch the Academy Awards probably than say I don't know an episode of Judge Judy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what they sort of represent culturally, the ratings aren't great. And they've been going steadily down for like seven or eight years. And there's a very direct correlation between the years that the Academy Awards did awesome and that there was at least one movie nominated that was a that was a mainstream success. Mm-hmm. So the last time the Academy Awards had a genuinely big night of ratings was when Avatar was nominated. Mm-hmm. Before that, I think the biggest night was when uh, Titanic was nominated. So occasionally, right, there'll be a movie that's a huge mainstream, uh, audience-friendly attraction, but then also has whatever artistic merit is necessary to cross the threshold of, you know, Academy voters. And then, but then there's also this very interesting intersection of the uh, television ratings do great when you have a movie that's nominated, it's going to attract a lot of people who sort of, you know, like that movie. And so... So part of what you're what you're talking about, which resonates so much with me, is that, like, so for for example, this year with the Academy Awards, there was nine films nominated. Uh, I watched all of them in, in two weekends because I was you know, I do the uh, AMC Best Picture Showcase, and um, I enjoyed I enjoyed all of them. Uh, some of them I, I loved a lot more to a different degree. Uh, and the the actual Oscar broadcast was outstanding, very entertaining. Except for the, the ending, which was very awkward when they announced the wrong movie. I don't know if you saw any of that, but it was kind of awkward and hilarious. And uh, uh, where basically, just in case you missed it, uh, the last award, biggest award of the night for best picture, uh, they announced the wrong winner, but they didn't know for like two or three minutes. Oh my gosh. So they had the producers and everybody on stage. There was like two speeches that they were giving and thanking their family and everything. And in the middle of the speeches, Finally, a producer came out, and then they got it all straightened out. And then um, the the people who actually won thought, probably rightly so, that the movie Moonlight, they thought it was like this weird... They, they, they thought they were being punked or something. They're like, we're not going on that stage. And it was this whole silly, funny thing. Funny if you weren't involved. So funny for me. But anyway, uh, I think the point I was making is that all nine of the movies, I enjoyed all of them. And I can appreciate the the artistic merit of all of them, but the fact that that you know there's there's this there's a there's a disconnect between in this case say the uh, the Academy Awards, which honors and you know for 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 them it's very subjective, but you know they honor the best movies of the year, and those movies almost never intersect with the movies that people are by and large, actually watching and are actually entertained by mm-hmm. and that they're going to the theater in, in, in droves to to see. So, um, like, like, re, like in the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, a, a huge success is the movie uh, Get Out. And before that, uh, Logan, the Wolverine movie, was very successful. Um, later this year, there's going to be some huge superhero movies. Justice League is coming out and... I think Wonder Woman's coming out with this mm-hmm. year. All these movies that are that um, I'm 
super excited to watch. Mm -hmm. And they're going to make a bunch of money. And a lot of people are going to enjoy them as, as much as I do. And yet, they're not going to they're they're not going to be regarded in the same way as maybe the you know uh, say a whatever an Oscar worthy film whatever that is I don't even know if you can define that so so that's my long winded way of saying I I completely both agree and understand where you're coming from mm -hmm. that that there are movies that do have a certain artistic merit and a cultural significance but if I have to choose between that and uh, watching Iron Man, I'll choose Iron Man pretty much all day. Right. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's interesting that you bring up the Oscars because that's, um, I've had a, a very, I've had an experience that's kind of akin to your observations that, you know, you, you've just made, which uh, back in 1993 when I had my epiphany and became obsessed with film, that was the year Titanic mm -hmm. um, won Best Picture. So that's kind of when I discovered the Oscars and became really obsessed with um, the Oscars in general and, you know, eventually wanting to go up on that stage and accept a, an, an Oscar for the movie that I had directed or written or, or what have you. Um, but my, and, and, and it's probably not just a, a result of like the, the direction that the Oscars have gone since then in terms of the films that, that get recognized. There are a lot of other factors in, in my life that were at play. Um, but I gradually, you know, lost, interest in the Oscars because I felt like more and more of the movies that were nominated didn't resonate with me at all mm -hmm. just for the, for the very reason that they were extremely artistic, culturally important films that I think are, are, are and I think the Oscars at, at least if in, in the direction that they've been going, if that's the venue in which to kind of um, highlight these films, I think that's great and mm -hmm. I think it's a really great way to uh, raise awareness for these you know really important films, but for me um that it my my interest in the Oscars slowly waned because the films that I was most interested in creating and and watching were seeing less and less representation, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception of you know categories like special effects and sound editing and yeah. things like that. Um, so yeah, that that's it's definitely interesting to to note that you know you've also kind of noticed that that's been the general trend over the last couple of years. And even too with uh say like with books as well because like my I think we had similar high school experiences with the exception that um you were a much better student than me. But I think the general uh nature of high school I think we were both bored. Mm -hmm. Um and I wasn't bored because it was too easy. I was just bored because this is a boring place and these are boring classes and this is boring information. And, and I wasn't even like, like rebellious or bratty about it. It was just very unengaging, but I just accepted, well, that's, that's what school is. School is apparently a place you go to not be engaged or entertained. And then hope, hopefully you learn something. And then mostly it's just something to keep you, uh, you know, babysat until your parents get home from work or whatever. Like it didn't feel very particularly um, useful or it's also, you know, a place to see your friends. And so, uh, and, and so for that same reason, say it, when there was like books in school that we were assigned to read that the general high school canon of whatever, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Lord of the Flies, Our Town, um, I don't know, whatever, but that general, The mm -hmm. Great Gatsby. Sure. Yeah. And because I, because I all reading because reading already didn't come comfortably to me, uh, and my the, the reading that I enjoyed most was comic books, which 
which now with time and perspective and just a little bit more understanding, I realize that I'm just a, a visual learner. I'm a visual person in general. So it makes perfect sense that even as a kid, a comic book was immediately engaging where just a, a book with words, even if the story in there was amazing, um, I didn't yet have the ability to, you know, to tap into that. So then, it, so because that's the majority of high school, I, I didn't, I wasn't a great student except for when I took my art classes. When I took art classes, that's the only time it was both fun and easy. And I felt like I was just hanging out and just doing this thing that I'd be doing in my own time anyway, but I actually get to do it here. And I, and, and also for that reason, I, I don't think it felt serious. Like I felt like, okay, well, this is fun, but clearly nobody's going to take this seriously because if, if you're enjoying it, then you're not learning. That was the unfortunate connection that I made in my head. So, um, so then fast forward to my first year of college and uh, I was, I, that, that's when I discovered reading. I mean, well, that's when I discovered that there was actually books that I could enjoy. And, you know, the, the first one was The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which if I picked it up today, chances are I, I, I don't know that I would actually enjoy because it it's not really the sort of book I would read. Mm-hmm. But there was something about that book that unlocked it for me. And then I, then I wanted to read more. And then I went on this quest to discover just books that I would enjoy. And then eventually realized that, you know, if I found a book that I liked, then, you know, then it made sense to make note of the author and read other work that they did. And then little by little, I, I eventually discovered authors who I enjoyed. Um, the first one that just still to this day, one of my very favorites, his name is Tom Robbins. And, you know, his name never once got mentioned in high school. Uh, nobody... None of my friends mentioned him because they, I'm sure they didn't know him. Um, and, and it's not to say that he was like this sort of little, whatever, whatever artsy author somewhere. It's just his books weren't part of the, the high school canon. And so I had always made the connection with, well, high school is this institution of learning. So if these are the books that we have to read, these are clearly the best examples. And if I don't enjoy this, then I just must not enjoy reading. And in the same way that if you watch the Oscars and think, well, this is the best example of movies. So if I don't enjoy that, I must not like movies. But little do you know, there, there might be Guardians of the Galaxy, which will just you know blow your mind or something. So I, fi- I found my version of authors that are those sort of, you know, the, the, the version of those that would be the movies that they might not get re- recognized for their artistic merit, but they lit up my imagination. Mm-hmm. And then once I found those books... Then I I really feel this passion that I wanted to be a writer, similar to you when you were first watching Jurassic Park, and it made you feel a certain way. And I was like, I I love the way this book make, makes me feel. I'd love to learn how to do this eventually. And actually, this this leads me up to uh, how you and I actually know each other. In my first year of school is when I took my first college English class with S. K. Murphy, who uh, for for both of us, both a mutual friend, a mutual mentor. And it's a mutual, wonderful person that I'm sure you agree we're both very lucky to, to know. Completely. And so in her class, uh, the first assignment that she gave uh, she gave us was to write an autobiographical essay. So uh, I, I just wrote about this experience when I had a, a high school job and I was working at Thrifty's. I was an ice cream scooper. And I did some bad stuff like stealing money from the register, <laughs> sort of. I don't know. I talk about it on episode 19 or something you can listen to it but I go into more detail about some of the unsavory things that I did and then so when I was in her class I wrote about that experience but I was my first year in college I wasn't a good high school student I didn't really know how to write 
So it was just pure uh, instinct, I guess, just just writing the story with no real structure of what it means to be a writer. And because I didn't know what I was doing, and also I actually enjoyed the experience, I assumed this is terrible. I'm probably going to get a failing grade on this, but at least it's the first assignment and I got it out of the way. And then it turned out that uh, Kay loved it so much that she read it to the class. And that blew my mind because, again, I'm thinking, well, this was fun and I don't really know what I'm doing. So clearly I didn't do a good job. But not only did she love it and read it to the class, as she read it, the whole class loved it. And then I was like, this is amazing. Like, they're, they're, they were responding almost as if they were in a movie theater watching a movie and I got to see them enjoying this thing that I wrote. And that, that's what really put the, the, the bug in me. And then, of course, Kay put it over the top when she gave me my paperback and somewhere on the last page said something to the effect of, yeah, you're pretty good at this. You should think about like majoring in English or being a writer. And then that was super important because now it was like this thing that I did that I didn't even... I, I, I don't want to say I didn't try hard on it, but I didn't know what I was doing. So I just did what came naturally. And this thing that I did naturally, I enjoyed it and they loved it. And this is something that I can just do. And it just blew my mind and kind of set me off on my, my journey, which eventually, you know, got me to where now I'm, I'm, I'm writing books and stuff. You actually, I, I, I'm almost envious of you because, uh, you met Kay at a point in your life where, uh, I met her when I was my first year in college. You actually met her uh, when you were a high school student. So in the in the big grand scheme of things, you actually got a few extra years of uh, of Kay Murphy's influence early in your life. So uh, let's because she deserves it, and I know she's listening. Go ahead and talk a little about uh, you know your connection with Kay. Sure. So and it's very similar to 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 yours. It, it's just I think advanced by about four years because my first year of high school I had a freshman English class uh, with S. K. Murphy, and it, there was this really interesting thing that happened. Like like prior to that, um, when I became you know in, in elementary school when I became interested in in, in movies um, and and realizing that movies started with the script, so you would have to write a story beforehand. And there were a lot of um, programs that our elementary school did where they would have the kids, you know, uh, write their own, you know, short books. And then we'd have like an author's day fair and all these sorts of things. Um, and in third grade, I had written this book um, that I, I was just doing what came naturally, naturally to me and what I thought was interesting. And it ended up being like picked for um, to, to be like read to the parents for like as the the book from the third grade. Um, they had this like parent teacher uh, or, or this like parent presentation where uh, one book from each grade level was read to the parents or whatever, and mine got chosen. And I didn't really think anything of it. Um, and then in sixth grade, I, I'd written something else that I thought was like really snarky and like totally cynical. I was like, <laughs> just did not care about the assignment at that point. And so I wrote this thing that was uh, that, that kind of went out there. And I was like, ah, you know, this is this has got some bite on it, but I don't care. Um, and then there was this. Uh, contest that they that they that our class held where they were going to bring in this like a uh, traveling theater troupe who would take stories that the uh, students have written and turn them into these like short vignette plays um and to, much to my surprise like my entire cl class voted for my story like of all things which was even more baffling to me because I, it was like a complete throwaway thing that i had written and i had to like no it, it, i did not take that project seriously at all so it was really surprising for that to happen but again i didn't think anything of it um 
And it wasn't until um, high school, my freshman year of high school, that I you know took Kay's class and I was writing assignments, and they started coming back you know with a, a lot of really positive notes and you know red marker on there. And then I think one um, one day uh, after class was over, you know Kay kind of pulled me to the side and, and said, you know, Michael, I don't know if you know this, but you're a really good writer, and that kind of took me by surprise. I I didn't really know like. What, what that really meant or like what I was doing because up to that point my assumption was just like oh well well writing is just something you do like you just sit down you you just write like everybody can do this right but the reality that Kay helped uh help helped enlighten me to was that not everybody can do this like it doesn't come naturally or easy to most folks so it and and even like even to this day, it's still hard for me to comprehend that I or, or to accept the fact that I'm a quote you know good writer. Um, it and and it and I think because of that, because of what had happened in elementary school and the you know direction that Kay had given me, it sort of put me on this path that I didn't even really think about up to that point because I'd always wanted to be a filmmaker and a director, but once that happened. Um, and then a few other friends who had, once I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I can start exploring this. And I started writing a little bit more, um, friends and family members and other acquaintances would then pipe in and say like, man, you're a really good writer. You should, I, I know you want to be a filmmaker, but man, maybe a screenwriter, like you'd be really good at it. So then I started getting more in, in, you know, in, involved in, in, in that. But, but yeah, it was absolutely, you know, without being in that place at that time and having you know Kay come into my life and tell me like hey I don't know if you know it kid but you're a really good writer and you you could do something with this I, I probably wouldn't have done anything with it and it's been amazing ever since to have to have her as a mentor kind of guiding me and encouraging me and 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 um I mean and, and the book that I've written now that my you know my the first book that I've published um I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Kay not only for putting me on the path but for helping me you know, birth this thing into the world because getting that first book out is really, really hard. And she was there the, you know, and the, the entire time, you know, being my biggest cheerleader. Um, so yeah, I have a huge debt of gratitude to her, but it, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's so difficult to, um, unless you're like a total narcissist, right? It's completely impossible to, uh, objectively assess your own performance mm -hmm. in, in basically anything. And so whenever I would do writing, like up to that point, it was just writing and I didn't really think it was good or bad. I just thought it was writing. Um, and then once I was told like, oh, you're a really good writer. Well, then I would write things and think, oh man, I'm not living up to the expectation because this is total garbage. <laughs> like this is not good at all. Um, and and then and then taking that stuff that I thought was absolute trash and putting it out there and people going, oh, wow, you know, this is actually pretty good. Like, wow, okay. It, it, eventually I got to a point where I had heard that enough and and realized that my inner critic was usually wrong or that things that I put out that I thought, oh man, this is awesome. This is going to like rock the world. And then it goes out there with a fizzle and nobody cares or it, it, you know, it, it just dies. And then things that are just total throwaways that go out into the world and take off. It was at that point that I kind of realized like, okay, there's no way that I can um, accurately assess my performance. So I'm not even going to try. Um, and, and, but uh, kind of going back to what ended up happening there once I went on the like screenwriting path um, that kind of, uh, sort of pathway ran in parallel with college, uh, whereas college was like, for the longest time for me, it was this big detour from filmmaking where I was like, okay, I'm going to go do this for four years, even though what I really want to do is just stop what I'm doing, run to Hollywood, um, sneak onto the backlog of Universal Studios 
and you know try to make it as a filmmaker uh i i knew that i kind of had this uh commitment to friends and family to go to college and to get a degree that way i'd have you know a, a really solid plan b if you will um and so college consumed so much time i didn't really have time to make movies but i did have time to kind of dabble in screenwriting and learn about screenwriting and so that's kind of when i started um learning about the craft and uh, learning that there was a craft to it and that there was sort of this formula or that this, this recipe that you could follow, which I, I really strongly rejected at first. When I was uh, a, a nascent writer, I hated the idea that there was like this structure you could follow or that you could you could build something. I, I had always envisioned it as being this like fit of mania that the like <laughs> artist would um, would experience and would just like rush through and, and write, you know, this screenplay in, in this one moment or that a filmmaker would, uh, like a director would come onto the set and would just have this muse channeling through, through them and they would be, uh, you know, pointing this way and that and telling people where to put the camera and it would be this just like frenzy at the end of which you would have this brilliant artistic vision, right? <laughs> um, and, and now I know how foolish that, that was and, and how it is not like that at all it's it's definitely it's much more perfunctory than 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 that um and so kind of like trying to come to terms with that took me uh a, a, a little while but once i did um that's when i started accepting the idea that you know you could you, you could learn how to do this and that there was kind of a, a formula to it um and then i started reading a, a lot of different screenwriting books um most of which didn't really resonate with me there were a lot of books that i still kind of wrinkled my nose at and didn't they just weren't speaking to me like nothing was clicking like mm-hmm. i would read things but feel like well i don't know that i really agree with that like here are these other he, here's the case that this book is making and here are these other examples that uh, of films that i really like that are completely counter to this argument um and it wasn't until i found this book called uh save the cat that really changed everything to me and uh, i'm i'm sure Listeners out there, if you've heard of, the, uh, of Save the Cat, you're, you're either um, nodding your head, yeah, or you're shaking your head in disappointment, because <laughs> Save the Cat seems to be a very divisive book. Um, most people either seem to think, well, have, have had the experience that I had where it was kind of very revelatory, uh, and then a lot of people feel that it is, it, it's, it's, it's schlock, it's, it's very trashy, um, and, and has done a lot of harm uh, to the to the industry and the craft of storytelling in, in Hollywood. Uh, but the thing that was really interesting about Save the Cat was it was written by this uh, screenwriter who uh, named Blake Snyder, um, who, who was a, an actual screenwriter in Hollywood. I think he, his uh, parents, or at least his father, uh, was, a, was a writer, and so that's how he got into uh, writing. And he wrote this book, and it was kind of a interesting, like, no-nonsense, very... Um, have coffee with a friend at a coffee shop, very conversational uh, expose on the formula that Hollywood uses to write movies. And it was mind-blowing to me. Like, I, I couldn't believe the stuff I was reading, and he was using examples that would show, like, yeah, you know, look at this movie and that movie and this scene uh, here, and and kind of taking his argument and showing that this is really how, how it works. And it, for me, it was kind of like that moment at the end of The Matrix where... Um, Neo can finally see the code, right? And he can, like, <laughs> stop the bullets. It's like, wow, this this formula that was right under my nose this whole time, I could finally see it. Uh, and that was really interesting to me, especially being kind of like, and I don't consider myself to be a movie buff, and I think because I, I love cinema and, and storytelling um, in a very, like, specific uh, profile, 
a lot a lot of people tend to assume like oh you're a movie buff you know you must know this movie you must like that but i'm really not so i so sometimes i kind of feel like a little bit of imposter syndrome i'm like <laughs> well i like really specific movies a whole lot uh but i'm, I'm not really a movie buff um but it, it was it, it it's interesting because um this 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 book this save the cat book had these like moments where um i was completely captivated by by what he was saying and he kind of like you know pulled the curtain back and you could see the wizard uh or, or the man behind the curtain pretending to be the wizard um and and so i kind of had the, this uh this period of time where i was using what i was learning in save the cat and applying it to my own stories and my own screenplays um and it was super helpful with the exception that i was kind of still having trouble i was still running into problems especially like when i got to act two um, even as much as uh, Blake Snyder breaks down his formula and save the cat, it still felt really incomplete to me, and that was kind of frustrating. I didn't really know uh, if I just wasn't getting it, or if there actually were missing puzzle pieces that he didn't have, um, which kind of eventually led me um, to trying to fill in those, the, the, fill in the holes, and figure it out myself. Um, and and that's kind of what I did. I because when I was and, and and actually something that's kind of interesting is um, I I had originally planned to start writing my first novel, and when I sat down to start working on it, and, I, and I'm I'm definitely an outliner and a plotter. I'm not a pantser at, at all, um, so I like to like thoroughly map out the entire story. Um, and I and I realized when I was doing that that I was really struggling with. Um, certain plot points that just didn't seem to be there mm -hmm. or sections that were described in such a way where it seemed like, well, this is supposed to be a beat, but really it feels like it's, it's a much longer section of the story and there's just not enough information there. Um, and so because I was having all these problems writing this first novel, I thought, well, okay, I'll do something instead of just sitting here stalling and procrastinating, I'll try to do something productive with my time. And that is do some research and take some notes on stories that I know and love uh, and so I, I, where I was working at the time, um, they had a pretty generous, uh, like ho holiday vacation where they, um, in, in, in to like prevent, uh, people from taking vacation, like all over the place and constantly having to like fill in, they kind of dumped like a huge vacation right at the end of the year and said like, okay, everybody's off at the same time. Don't, don't worry about it. And so I had this, this vacation and rather than going anywhere and doing anything, um, I kind of hunkered down, uh, at home with three movies and watched them over and over again and took a bunch of notes and just analyzed them to death. And those three movies were uh, three of my favorite films, um, Tangled, uh, the, the Disney animated film, um, The Empire Strikes Back, and uh, The Dark Knight. And I, I chose those films because they are some of my favorite films. They're really commercially successful, very critically acclaimed. Um, and I think they're just fun. Like if, if I wanted to write movies, I'd be super happy to have, you know, written anything even re remotely close to those films. Um, and they're, they're like wildly different films in a lot of ways, but I wanted to find out what made them tick. What were the missing pieces that were not in Save the Cat and not in these other books that I had read, that, that I had read, um, what, 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 what was missing? What was the missing ingredient that made them all work, made them awesome? Um, and so I just started analyzing them and trying to find the patterns, trying to find the things that, that made them different. Um, and it was a really long procrastination project <laughs> that turned into a, a four-year-long project, the end result of which was a book. Uh, but by the time I had 
kind of compiled these notes and had found things that I had never read anywhere else before, I, I, I felt like, wow, okay, I've, I've really got something here that, that I can use. Like, this is going to be great. And I started showing it to, you know, some of my friends and, and writer friends, and they were like, wow, you, you have a lot of notes here. This is, maybe you should turn this into a book. And then that kind of uh, was, was one of those, like, light bulb moments for me because I realized... Um, it, having done this with no intention of ever writing a book um, with this information, this, all these were just notes for myself, um, realizing, well, wait a minute. If, if I was in that position where, you know, Save the Cat was great, but didn't, uh, didn't answer all my questions, and, I, and there were all these other books that didn't resonate with me at all, um, you know, that stands to reason that there's probably a lot of other people out there who feel the same way, for, for whom there isn't that book out there that resonates with them that kind of explains story structure um so it's and and there's this really great quote that i had heard a long time ago that was something like um if the book you want to read hasn't been written yet you need to write it and so uh having all those thoughts swirling around in my head it made perfect sense to kind of compile all these notes and and edit them and rewrite them in such a way that um they would be that, that I could turn them into this book that I could put out into the world and other people can, could, could, could benefit from. And, and people who had either not really liked Save the Cat or loved Save the Cat but felt like, man, it, it's just not the entire story, they could come to this and be like, okay, here's everything. Um, and so that's kind of like, the, that's kind of the long-winded story of how I got to writing this book, which is Blockbuster Blueprint, um, which was, like I said, in the works for about four years. Because once I had the an initial... Um, once I had looked at those three movies and compiled a whole bunch of notes, I kind of stress tested what I had against all, like about 200 other movies, books, video games. And that was the other thing that was kind of wild is I, I started challenging myself like, okay, well, I've got this formula that works for Tangled, Empire Strikes Back, and Dark Knight, but it's probably not going to work for anything else. So let, let, me, let me try on something else. And sure enough, it, it worked on that uh, it, and, and maybe needed to be tweaked a little bit, but it was a pretty darn close fit. Um, and there were certain... Um, elements that I had noticed in, in each movie that, that were like wildly specific in like the content of the scene, where it happened in the movie. Um, like for example, one of the things that I noticed pretty early on was, uh, this, uh, this beat. Um, so for, uh, for like a, a quick summary of beats, when you're looking at a plot for, um, a, a movie or a story, um, there's like, like the, the classic model is three act structure, right? You've got act one, act two, act three. Um, and act two is, is a, a little bit longer than the other two acts. And the basic idea is in act one, you kind of introduce the characters in act two, you get them into some kind of really dire situation that seems impossible that they're ever going to get out of. And then in act three, you get them out of it. That's kind of like the, the, the classical Aristotelian model from, you know, way long ago. Um, but in more modern books, there are more pieces to that plot puzzle. So, like, in Act 1, you've got uh, a couple moments that happen. Like, there's uh, yeah, the introduction of, of the main character. There's, like, this thing that happens that kind of sets the story in motion, so on and so forth. And so a lot of the books that I had read had those pieces, but they didn't have everything there. And so that's kind of what I wanted to go and, and fill in. Um, and so when you look at the three, three acts... Uh, you can break them down even further into these moment, these like story moments called beats, which are basically like uh, these little milestones along the story way where once you get to them, something happens that moves the story in a different direction or propels it forward or something surprising happens. Uh, but there are these moments that are like super important to the sort of evolving process that the story takes. 
Um, and, and Save the Cat was the book that kind of like revealed that to me. Like I'd never heard of beats before, but when I read Save the Cat, he has like, I think about 12 or 15 beats in there that are these like little signposts all along the way from, you know, the opening image of, of the, the movie all the way to the end. Um, with, with, with uh, a lot of beats in, in between. Uh, but what, what ended up happening was when I used that uh, formula for my own writing, those signposts were just, some of them were just too far apart from each other. They were just too few and far between. So there would be these long stretches where I would kind of be on my own and be wondering like, okay, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. Uh, especially in Act 2. Act 2 has been like the, the bane of my existence since I <laughs> started writing. Um, and the, the, and in, in terms of like the resource material available in Act 2, most books I had, I felt were severely lacking in the the beats and the signposts. Like what's supposed to happen in there very specifically. And so that was one of the probably biggest driving forces behind doing all this research and writing this book anyway. Um and so what I ended up doing was kind of like finding all of these uh, beats and kind of like plotting out from the very beginning all the way to the end, these 40 signposts. And, and what was kind of interesting to me in Save the Cat was even though uh, Blake's model only has like 12 or 15 beats, there's an exercise in there where he says, okay, you, you want to take these 40 index cards and you want to put them up on the wall. You know, and the first row, you want 10 index cards. The second row, you want another 10, so on and so forth. So you basically have four rows of index cards, and they're all 10 across. The very first row is act one. So you've got 10 beats from to, to get from the beginning of the uh, scripts to the end of act one. And then you've got 20 cards uh, for act two. And then the final 10 are act three. Um but when you but but if you have these forty cards and you only have fifteen beats, there are a lot of cards that that don't that that don't have any like instruction mm -hmm. to go to go along with it, right? So I kind of like filled in the rest of that and figured out what all of the other uh, would that be thirty no, twenty eight beats. Um, uh, what else goes in there? And as I was kind of figuring these these things out, and I wasn't like specifically um, tr trying to like cram something in there. I was kind of trying to map out what we already knew, look at where the holes were, and then go to stories at that point in time and try to figure out, okay, like, what's happening here? What's happening in this movie? What's happening in that movie? And what's happening in this movie? All after this moment, but before this moment happens. Like, what happens in there? And to, to give you an example, one really interesting thing that I noticed happens uh, immediately after the break into Act 2 is this beat that I like to call Crash Landing. Which was, which is quite literal in in what happens. I noticed in all these uh, movies and even in some video games and books that there's this moment right after the protagonist decides to uh, break into the second act where they end up um, crashing to like to the ground or they end up sprawled out on their back. Um, so like in The Empire Strikes Back, uh, when Luke, uh, so the the whole entire first act is all on Hoth, right? And then when the uh, rebellion gets defeated by the Empire and they're like fleeing. Um, that's when you're breaking into Act 2, and Luke, rather than um, regroup or rendezvous with the, the rest of the Rebellion, he decides to go to Dagobah to find uh, Yoda. But when he arrives there, he crashes in the swamp, and his uh, X-Wing is completely wrecked, and, and it's, um, it, it's stuck in, in the swamp. So he's kind of somewhat marooned there. Um, and then in Iron Man, the very first Iron Man... Um, something very similar happens that the entire first act of that movie is kind of jumping back and forth between uh, what's happening in uh, Southern California. Um, like I think it's like six months or a couple of weeks prior to what happens in Afghanistan. 
Um, uh, but once you get to Act Two, um, that moment is when Tony, who has been kind of held hostage in this cave uh, by these terrorists for you know trying to uh, get him to build a, a super weapon for them, um, and he builds this suit. He he ends up escaping, and that's kind of like his his breakout moment, right? That when he's moving into Act Two, uh, and when he finally does escape, he like hits the the jetpack on his um, Iron Man suit, flies into the sky, uh, but the whole thing just kind of completely goes kaput, and he crashes in the desert, and he's sprawled out, and the whole thing is broken all over the place. So there was like another crash landing there, and I just kept finding these things. Like whenever I would go to that point in the story where the character had just left Act One and was entering Act Two. They were on such unsure footing that they would always end up sprawled out on the ground. Um, the same thing happened, in, and there was always this like theme of descent. Like in in the Matrix, I, I noticed that, some, that something very similar happened there too. When Neo finally decides, like, okay, I'm going to take, uh, I think it's the red pill, go down the rabbit hole, see see what happens. Um, he ends up waking up in the real world and descending down this tube, and he crashes into the sewer, and then he's like sprawled out on his back for the next couple scenes while. Um, the, the the crew on the Nebuchadnezzar is rebuilding all of his muscles, and so it was this it was this really fascinating thing to see a moment like that where I'd never heard anybody talk about that before. I'd never seen that written before, um, but it was like so obvious, and it's in all these movies and it's in all these stories, and so th- there are just things like that that I found all along the way that um, really helped me kind of dial in what, what the missing parts of of this like story formula were. And it's it, almost to the point where now it's kind of hilarious when I'm watching a movie and, and waiting to see like, okay, where's the crash landing beat? Um, boom, there it is. Um, so, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's been kind of a, a, a wild ride to, 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 to get there. Now the, the, the book itself, Blockbuster Blueprint, uh, so far, if, if, um, if there was a potential reader for the book, if all they had was the, to, if all they had to go by was a conversation you and I are having, specifically listening to you talk about uh, movies and kind of breaking down the some some very common storytelling beats. Then, uh, then, then for me, it stands to reason that you know you you were uh, a terrific a, a terrific authority to write this book. But uh, I, I I assume that you also imagine that there's probably going to be potential readers out there who might be a little bit cynical and they might say to themselves, well. Okay, this is his first book. That's great, but he's never written a novel. He's never made a movie. He's never designed a video game. Why why should I listen to what this guy has to say about storytelling? And again, I'm not one of those people, but I I I, I can only assume that's something that you've thought at least a little bit about. And so in that case, you know, how how do you how would you sort of uh how would you engage that person in terms of, you know, why they should give your, your, your book some uh, a chance? Sure. No, th- that's a totally fair question. In fact, that was one of, like, w- one of the potential, um, like, roadblocks for me in actually putting this book out there was that very thing, where I, me, as, uh, as somebody who likes to consume these books, who, who likes to learn about the craft... I would not at all trust somebody who's like, oh, this is their first book, they've never written anything else, like... Well, what expertise could they possibly have? Like, I mean, that's like, you know, getting exercise advice from somebody who's totally out of shape, right? Like, that doesn't make sense. Um, and so I was really reluctant to, to even bother with uh, putting the book out there. In fact, I thought, I, for a long time, I thought about, well, maybe I'll just hold on to these notes. I'll just keep this for myself, and I'll, I'll use this uh, formula to write my, my own books, which was kind of the whole point of writing the thing to begin with, was to create this 
model that I could use to write a whole bunch of other um, stories. Um, and so I really didn't want to put it, put it, put it out there, but I got so much encouragement from, um, from friends that like, Hey, you know, I, I know you feel this way about it, but a lot of people could benefit f from this and you've written it in such a way that it's really accessible. Um, and so what, and, and so for that, like uh, skeptical reader out there, I would say definitely be super skeptical. Um, and if you want to wait and see what happens, you know, maybe, um, Maybe I use this model and and prove out that oh wait a minute I had no idea what I was talking about this whole time all <laughs> all the stories I've written since then have been terrible, um, but but for me it I, I think it made more sense to um, expose myself to that kind of criticism. Uh, the the cost of that was less than the benefit for putting it out there for somebody who would approach it and say like well this just makes sense to me like this speaks to me because it kind of goes back to that same thing where. If this book was out there already, I wouldn't have written this one. I wrote it because there was nothing like th this out there. And so this was the book that I was looking for. Um, even though I haven't written anything yet, um, it's kind of part of... This is like the completion of the first phase in a lifelong process of uh, writing a whole bunch of stories. And it, it was just super important to me in writing my own stories that they be as um, as interesting as possible to, to to me, that they were like... Uh, of a quality that I, as an audience member, would would enjoy, and the stories I was writing at the time using the existing models just were not that, um, and so it was really important to 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 create this, if nothing else, for my own um, storytelling uh, and and storycraft purposes. Um, but that said, it it just made sense, even in spite of my you know limited experience, um, to to put it out there, and we'll you know time will tell if. I, I got it right or, 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 or not, or if there are, you know, future changes that I'll, I'll need to make. Um, but I think for the, for the skeptic out there, I, you know, I, I would say don't, um, don't, don't lose that skepticism at all. You should always question, you know, everything you read. Um, and even if the, and, and, and I guess part, part of the other aspect of that too is don't just question people who don't have experience, but even the guys with a lot of experience, mm -hmm. because even in those cases, I mean, some of the most renowned story uh, craftsmen out there, like their books just didn't resonate with me at all. Like I just, and, and I think it's totally okay if that happens to say, you know, this book's not for me. Put it down and, and go find another book. Or uh, if, you're, if you're in my, you know, situation, go write your own book. Um, and so I think that, you know, that level of cynicism and skepticism is totally healthy and, and you should definitely em embrace that. And if you feel like... Uh, you know, I need to put my money where my mouth is first, then that's totally fine. And, you know, we'll just <laughs> wait and see, I guess. And, you know, a, a big part of the reason why I am not cynical about your book, and uh, again, but even beyond this conversation, uh, if you and I had never had this sit down, um, I, w I would still be happy to, to read your book and I would still go into it uh, with very high hopes that you have something uh, cool to offer. But then also sitting here talking to you and hearing it's both both hearing you talk about the the ideas and the research and the movies, but then also, uh, again, like this is an audio medium. So for those of you listening, you know, you can hear our voices, but I actually have the benefit of seeing uh, how engaged and excited and inspired Michael is to talk about these things. So all those things in and of themselves, for me, help validate that this, that this book shouldn't be looked at. I mean, well, you know, I'll, I'll take Michael's lead. Be skeptical of everything. But with this one going there with the with with the really high hopes. But the other thing that I'm thinking about is 
that my favorite uh, my my well, my favorite film critic, but really the only film critic that I really gave much uh, much paid much attention to uh, was Roger Ebert, and I spent you know nearly twenty years from the time I was uh, eighteen or so, and uh, we first got the internet in our house, and I first read one of his reviews uh, online. And uh, and I loved it. And I was blown away, and I wanted to read everything he had to say about movies. And then uh, I found books of his. I would find video clips of him talking about movies, but mostly I looked for his reviews, which were really more. They were they were more just like these really well crafted essays about a particular movie, um, why it was good, why it was bad, or more specifically why he enjoyed it, why he didn't enjoy it, that sort of thing. And there there were there were times I would think to myself, you know, he's so smart. He knows so much about movies, but how come he's not making his own movies? Like, why can't he take this this knowledge and make his own movies? I mean, he did write one screenplay. I believe it was, like, Welcome to the Dollhouse or Welcome Back to the Dollhouse. Or I think it was, like, a sequel or whatever it was. And it's generally, I think it's sort of a, sort of a campy cult film. Um, I've only seen bits and pieces of it. I think it was the only screenplay he wrote. But that said, what he did do is he had a, a genuine, very genuine, from the bottom of his heart, love of movies. And that love of movies led him to watching a lot of movies. And by watching a lot of movies, he just learned a lot about movies to the point where he could talk about them uh, with great intellect, but also he was very uh, accessible. So so that said, I see so much of that in, in you, both talking to you and listening to you, that even if you never write your own story, the fact that this book, Blockbuster Blueprint, it's coming from a place of a lifetime of having a genuine love of stories and movies and video games and books, and that the, that you didn't go into it cynically. You went into it with, um, again, maybe even though you spent four years researching and writing it, it was really a book that you spent your whole life thinking about just because it came from this very genuine place. So for all those reasons, if there's anybody that's even a little bit skeptical about a guy who's talking about storytelling who hasn't yet written his own story. Cause I know, I know you will as, as best as you can put all that stuff aside because, cause I, cause, cause I think it would be a very worthwhile experience for you. Well, thanks Martin. I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's very much my pleasure. Uh, so let's see here. So now, so the book has been out for at this point, a couple of months. Yeah, I think it's been out for about two months. And so the the process of we could probably we could probably just do a whole episode just on the actual process of not just writing a book but uh, publishing it and then also after the book comes out the the effort that goes into uh, trying to make people aware that your book even exists in the world mm-hmm. its own sort of uh, uh, challenge. So that said, um, uh, talk a little bit about the the sort of you know. The moment where the, the the final draft is complete, and then the other work starts of actually publishing it and then getting it out there. Uh, talk a little bit about how that experience was and continues to be. Sure, and, and that's something that's kind of really interesting about r- writing your first book is discovering uh, all the things you didn't realize you didn't know. Um, so there's this, I think, general conception that. Writing a book is really hard, which it is. Um, but once you finish the book, that's it. You can kind of you know dust yourself off, and your your work is done. But that you're actually really just getting started. 
Um, so once the book was, uh, you know, air, air quotes here, finished, um, I, 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 so, so, and, and that's kind of another thing that I didn't really realize either, uh, is once you've written the first draft, like there's so much more work to happen after that, like rewrites and edits and, um, constant agonizing over whether or not this passage should say this or should say that, or, uh, you know, especially with like a nonfiction book, there were a lot of times where I was um, changing things for clarity or, you know, removing uh, concepts, um, changing metaphors, rearranging the entire structure of the book. Um, and so a lot of that stuff takes a really long time, but you're kind of, you're, you're working on honing in on creating something that is kind of well-organized uh, and straightforward because it, it's meant to be, you know, in, instructional. Um, so once I got to the point where I was, I mean, I, I could have just constantly noodled with it for eternity but I got to the point where I was really tired of not having it out there um and tired of my inner critic constantly complaining that you know this wasn't quite right um I just said okay th this is I'm I'm going to uh do like one more pass and then once that's done the only changes I'm going to make after that are going to be like typographical error corrections if 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 I find them um, and so I finally kind of like had a, a self-imposed deadline where I kind of locked the draft and said, okay, this is done. Um, and then I started, uh, learning about this, you know, independent publishing process and how to get the book out there, which there's a lot to learn. And it's, it's, it's one of those things where I had this to-do list where I, I kind of mapped out, okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. Finish the final draft, lock that. Um, and then the next line was just published to Amazon or whatever it was. And then, so it seemed like I only had, you know, one line item to do. And and each time I, I went in to, like, figure out, okay, well, how do I do that? I would get, like, three more to-do list <laughs> items, right? And then I'd go to each one of those, and then those would have three more things, and so on. And so. so it was like fighting the Hydra, where every time you chop off one head, you know, three more would grow up, and you'd realize, oh, wow, there's all these other things I didn't even know that I was supposed to be doing. And so it's kind of been like that ever since, like, even after the book was published, like, once I, I finally had, you know, uh, crossed all those, uh, jumped over all those hurdles to get to the point where I could hit the button that said publish and it was out there in the world. Even after that, I'm realizing that there's still even more to do, like that the work is just never going to stop because even after you've got a book out there, um, th you, you still need to make it discoverable. You still need to find a way to get it out into the hands of readers and to get it, get it out there in the world, uh, which is a whole other aspect of the process so you know writing the book is the the first step publishing it is you know the, the kind of like intermediate step but then finally marketing is the long tail that's it's the thing you're probably going to spend basically the rest of your life yeah. w working on for for that book and it's something i think uh, i i knew i was going to have to do marketing but i didn't realize that it was going to be such a long-term investment was i didn't realize it was going to be something and I'd basically have to do uh, in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. um, and there's there and and the other thing about it that's kind of wild is it's not like you can go okay let me just go to Google and find out what the checklist is of marketing things that I'm supposed to do and I'll just go through them. Uh, it's so much more nebulous than that. It's that there are so many different avenues to getting you know a book into the hands of readers and to raising awareness and. Uh, it, a lot of it just depends on the content of the book, you know, what your uh, target audience responds to, um, and then also what you're comfortable doing. And uh, it, it's 
And, and one of the themes that like constantly kept coming up when I was doing research about marketing is um, one of, the, and, and this was actually really nice for me because, you know, my favorite part of the process or the process I'm most comfortable with is the writing part. Uh, constantly, over and over again, especially um, like like Joanna Penn is one of my like go to uh, you know virtual mentors for like how to how to do this. Um, one of the things that she mentions and a lot of other people mention is the best marketing you can do is to write more books, which is awesome to hear because <laughs> okay, I can do that. That's that's easy. Well, not easy, but much easier than uh, you know publishing and, and marketing. So, so that's nice, but at the same time, there are all these other things you can do, uh, you know, one of which makes perfect sense for this book and that I'm uh, in the process of putting together, so hopefully um, in, in the coming months I'll, I'll, I'll have it started, is I'm going to do a series of video essays, uh, and I'll post them up uh, on YouTube and probably on my website, where I will kind of go through <clears throat> and take a specific topic uh, that applies to uh, storytelling and and just have a have a conversation about it, um, in in much the same uh, voice and format as you know uh, m- as my book, um, but in maybe a little more informal way, and and be able to use like actual uh, examples pulled from uh, from from film. And I think that the whole idea behind doing that is um, that sort of medium is perfect for the audience for this book, which would be you know people who are really interested in you know, screenwriting and in movies. Um, in, in very visual uh, storytelling mediums, this is very accessible to them. And hopefully, you know, as people find these video essays, they'll go, oh, wow, you know, that was really interesting. And then maybe want to know more and then will eventually find their way to uh, Blockbuster uh, Blueprint, which is part of, um, as I'm coming to learn, is part of the like marketing funnel you want to create where you can, where you want to have a lot of points of access where people can find you um, and then you have those uh, initial points of access. If it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a blog, I've got a YouTube channel, I, I, I do a podcast, I, I do a guest speaking series. So you've got all these kind of like feelers out there where people can f- discover you. And then once they do, if they like what you're talking about, uh, then, then they'll, they'll start doing the work of searching out for your books. Mm-hmm. And that's where um, writing a lot of books comes into play because if you only have one book and they find you and they, and they buy that one book, well, you know, that's kind of the end of the line. But if you have a whole library of books, um, what, what tends to happen with, with, with readers, and I'm definitely, uh, you know, um, I, I have this same uh, characteristic, is once you find a writer that you like, you, you tend to want to keep reading their books. Uh, so if there is a writer that you like, you'll go, oh, wow, I really like this book. Let me go see what else they've written. And if they do a, a search or they go on Amazon and they find like, oh, you know, here's this huge library of books. Well, then, you know, you've, you've got this massive catalog of things for them to choose from and they can keep, uh, keep buying your books. So that's something that I'm learning in the process of, of trying to work on. But it's and, – and I think one of the other things too is it's a really long-term investment. It's not something that you can do even in like a couple months or a couple years. It's like years and years and years. It, it takes a long time to, to, to really build that platform and to get enough books out there, which is fine for me because I'm in this for the long haul. Like I have no interest in put, putting something out there and then you know, call, uh, you know closing up shop. This is – yeah, that's I mean that's the um, that's the smart way to think about it. Everything you said, by the way, is at least from my experience, a hundred percent true. And uh, I could, I think I can comfortably speak on behalf of uh, other authors I've spoken to. I think they'd agree with everything you said about, amongst other things, having you know, many points of interest uh, to lead them to the the one thing that you really want them to focus on, which is your book. 
also just that 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 when you have a book out there it, it it's it's sort of a lifetime investment and um especially for uh independent authors so you and I both publish independently one of the luxuries that we have is that we are um because we because we published our own books we are essentially also our own advocates and uh, as long as we have a stake in that book we'll 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 market that book for the rest of our lives and of course we'll always have a stake in it because it's our book as opposed to say you know a a, a publishing house be it a big publisher or a small publisher and they have many authors and they've got maybe i don't know five or 10 books they're going to put out this year and they can only give your book a certain amount of attention both before they move on to the next book on their list and then eventually uh once your once your book is sort of done in terms of you know they did what they could maybe it didn't uh, get traction so they're moving on to the rest of their list in the next year and the rest of their list after that now your book is just sitting there with the potential of kind of disappearing unless you know say you pick up the mantle and whatever promote it we're with us because it's our own books and we and we publish them ourselves you know we're always going to advocate for them we're always going to market them we're always going to we're never going to not care about that book and if you do engage it as a as a lifelong process there's also the luxury um that I've sort of been learning over the last couple of years is that say with my first book inside the outside I I feel like so it came out in 2011 and I in in my memory it felt like maybe two solid years of hustling and grinding and finding as many opportunities as I could to get myself out there, get my name out there, get my book out there. And it was, and I was tireless and I would find opportunities. I'd create opportunities. I would have opportunities presented because somebody knew somebody. And, uh, there's at least a handful of opportunities that our friend Kay was able to get me involved in. And so I think there was like two solid years until one day, and I don't know if it's just like one specific day, but I was just kind of, just kind of out of gas. But, you know, the book did get traction and it did do well, and I kind of felt like I could relax. And as I relaxed, you know, I, I there was also, I could also see, say that the book, its general visibility also relaxed with me. But then I was okay with that because I kind of figured, you know what, I did as much as I could. If, if it did all it's going to do, that's cool because I just need to... I just need to chill out. But then, you know, as a few years pass, I kind of realized that any time I feel like it, I can just do that again. Like, like that's my book. And anytime I, I want to sort of get back on the, pick on the grind, get back on the grind and, and start sort of marketing and promoting and, and, and really going full force to bring attention to it. I'll always have the luxury of doing that uh, because, you know, cause it's my book and I publish independently Whereas if, if it's a if it's a publishing house, you know, it, it's not that they didn't believe in the book. They just don't have time to go back to a book that was published five years ago because they've got all these other books to do. So everything you're saying is is spot on. And especially also like if you treat marketing your book as a lifelong endeavor, it takes a lot of pressure off because especially when you put a book out, there's this feeling. And, you know, I'll speak for myself, but assume other writers can resonate with this is that I need it to hit right away. I need it to be a success right away because if it's not, then I failed. And if I failed, then, then you know, whatever, I'm going to go to bed and cry myself to sleep. But if I accept it as a lifelong process, then, you know, uh, then, then the, well, on the one hand, you never give your, 
yourself a chance to fail because you know that you're going to do this for the rest of your life. And, uh, and even say with my first book inside the outside, um, it's, you know, it's not going to sell as many copies this month as it did uh, when it came out in 2011. But even if I sell one copy, you know, this month in its own way, that's kind of a victory that I wrote this book in 2011, do little to no marketing anymore, but there's enough, enough grease in the wheel that, you know, maybe one or two people buy it. And, uh, and I'm good with that too. So, so everything you're saying, I 100% agree with that, you know, certainly, especially cause it's your first book, you, you definitely want to throw yourself out there as much as you can to kind of get the ball rolling. But then big picture wise, you're also going to be doing this for, for the rest of your life. And it's, it's, uh, on the one hand, great attitude, but also too, it's like, um, I don't know for me, it's, 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 uh, I, I know on the, on the one hand, it's sort of an extension of this writing career that I've created for myself, but I almost never think of it in those terms. It's just fun. I just love writing. And then especially, especially now, and I think you'll, you'll, you'll get to enjoy this in the next couple of years as you start working on your next book. And then any book after that is it's, it's really fun and exciting to be in the process of writing a book. So right now I'm putting the, the finishing touches on a short story collection and I'm so excited about it. And part of the excitement is uh, I'm looking forward to getting into the process of publishing it and marketing it. And I'm excited for readers to to read it and hopefully enjoy it. But a lot of the excitement is I'm 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 I'm, I'm confident. Well, I'm confident that the people who like what I do will enjoy it. But then, then you, of course, that's the other thing is like. Again, and you'll you'll learn this as you publish more books, is that um, there's going to be, you know, every step along the way, you're going to have this core group of readers, who are exactly the people who love what you do, and they're they're the people you're writing to, and every time you write a new book, that core grows just a little bit more, and so once that core is kind of in place, then then you're always going to have this excitement of as you're writing a new book and you're excited you have this sort of idea of like, oh, I can't wait for them to read it because they're going to love it. And then, you know, you also know that best best case scenario, more people will discover it, discover the book. And of course, that also means that it raises the probability that somebody will hate it. But whatever, that's fine. It goes with the territory. I've, um, I'd like to say that I've gotten used to people hating my books or not saying nice things about them. I guess I'm more used to it than I was in 2011. It's never fun. But, but, uh, but then the other thing is like, I, I have this, I have this perception of writing where it's a little bit like dating. And if I wrote a book and I wrote it from, this is the best book I was able to write at this point in my life. And if you didn't like it, no hard feelings, just wasn't the book for you. Plenty of books in the sea. Uh, you'll find the right book for you. And this book is eventually going to find the person who's been, who's, who's really going to, really going to love it. Uh, actually having said that, I know your book is still very very new um uh at this point have you have you had the opportunity to uh to to read or get any feedback from essentially strangers uh not a whole lot the, the, actually when it comes to strangers the thing that was really surprising to me so far has been um i based on the um like you know while writing the book and while trying to determine how to uh, independently publish this thing 
uh, listening to all the other independent authors out there talk about how the overwhelming majority of their sales come from ebooks, mm-hmm. um, my plan was to just be digital exclusively and not have a physical book to get out there. Uh, if there was enough interest, I would you know cross that bridge when I got to it. Uh, what's been surprising to me is that the interest has been overwhelming immediately. Like I, I am suddenly kind of caught off guard because <laughs> my plan was to you know put this book out and then then uh, like simultaneously do the marketing for this book and also begin writing the next book. But now I'm uh, I'm, I'm realizing that I need to start working on creating a the paperback version, uh, which strangers have emailed me saying like, "Hey, your your book sounds amazing. You know, let me know as soon as the paperback version is available." <laughs> like, oh wow, okay, well, we'll do absolutely. I'll, I'll I'll let you know as soon as it's out there. And now that's you know uh, that's another one of those things where it's like the to do list said, you know, or, or print the paperback version and it's you know multiplied into this very long to do <laughs> list with all these things I have to do. Um, so. In terms of like feedback from strangers, that's been like the number one thing from people who have an interest in the book. Is surprisingly, there's a lot more interest in the um, in, in, in the physical copy, which I didn't expect. And I guess moving forward, um, I'll probably have that ready to go for future books, just in case, even if they end up only being a small percentage of sales. Uh, just because you know, I, I don't want to alienate anybody because of their you know preferred medium. Um, but I I did not anticipate the interest being that quick that's pretty interesting not, not that the interest was there but particularly that uh that there would be people specifically asking for the paperback because because the, the what you're saying has certainly been been my experience where i've published all my books in digital and print and the the, the majority of my my sales are again they do primarily come from the digital copies um but i i guess because the print books exist i i um I guess I I didn't necessarily I, I I wouldn't hear from people that would ask for because it, it was there, and sometimes honestly I almost forget that the print book exists because I know it does, but I spend so much time sort of uh, uh, fussing over the uh, the digital books and kind of looking over them and seeing how they're doing and you know what are the book sales like, uh, and I almost sort of without meaning to kind of forget the print book is there, but that that's actually a, a very interesting observation and um, and 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 you know. I can give you a, a quick heads up that the, the publishing the print book, um, it's it's I guess it's a little bit more involved than the uh, than, than the digital, but it's it's not that hard at all. So we can okay we can definitely talk about that a little bit later. I'd be happy to 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 offer what uh, what I know about that process. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap up in just a second. But uh, one one of the things that I've loved most about this conversation is that we're actually sitting in the same room. And it's uh, especially since I moved to Las Vegas, I've rarely, most of the authors I talk to are all over the country and in some cases, different places in the world. Uh, and so, you know, we can basically, with the wonders of technology and the internet and Skype, we can we can have these conversations and then I can, you know, and I could share them on the podcast. But the truth is there is a certain, there's a, there's a certain um, unnameable dynamic that that makes having a conversation in the same room with an author that much more enjoyable. Now that said, you don't actually live in Las Vegas. You're, you're, you're out here visiting. So as we wrap up, I'm just curious. Um, so long as you're in Las Vegas, do you have any, uh, any, any fun Vegas plans or are you just sort of, is it going to be just sort of a, a relatively mundane visit? A pr- pretty short trip. Um, this is one of the, because living in Southern California, Vegas is a pretty, um, 
popular weekend destination. You can drive out on Friday night and then drive back on Sunday. Um, and so, yeah, I, I came out here just to hang out with a friend who, who lives in Las Vegas. Um, and so just trying to spend as much time with, with him as possible. And for me, uh, Vegas is, is a really fascinating place, but it's definitely kind of the nexus of a whole bunch of things that are just outside of my wheelhouse. <laughs> like I've never been a gambler. I don't drink, I don't smoke. Um, so, but, but it, it's, it's nevertheless totally fascinating to me that this sort of place exists. Um, so, you know, and, and it's been a long time since I've, I've been here. I think the last time I was out here was, gosh, maybe eight, ten years ago. So a lot has okay. changed since then. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's been very interesting just walking the strip. And um, I played, uh, uh, I gambled for the very first time <laughs> in my life last night. Because, um, again, you know, when I turned 21, my you know parents and family were like, oh, you know, Vegas, let's, let's take you to Vegas and you can start gambling. I'm, nah, no thanks. I'd, I'd rather go to the movies or something. Um, so I, I, I'd never had the experience of, of actually gambling, but, um, what, what, what uh, game did you play? Uh, we played, uh, blackjack and, uh, pie gal poker. Um, and I, I put in 20 bucks and it kind of went up and down throughout the evening. I think my lowest was like about $5 and then I got up to $40. But I ended up walking away with twenty-one fifty, So I made a dollar fifty, <laughs> which is great. That's actually better than most people on this there trip. So <laughs> that's good. And also good news now that you're a gambler that you'll find that, uh, there's no shortage of places to to gamble, and so like my parents, uh, they were most amused by. They were, I think, a few months ago. They were out here visiting me for a, for a few, uh, at least a few days, probably like a week or so. And so we went to we went to Vons, which is a I don't I don't know how prevalent it is nationwide, but you know it's a big supermarket. So we went to Vons, and in Vons, the the one that they had a little little uh, casino where you could play like a slot machines and stuff. And they just thought that was like the best thing that even in you know in Vegas you can go to Vons and you could still gamble. Yeah, we noticed that too. We went into an Albertsons and there was a little uh, room off to the side where you could go gamble. Like, <laughs> who is grocery shopping and hitting the slot machines at the same time? <laughs> All right, Michael. Well, this has been uh, a, a, a genuine pleasure. I've enjoyed this conversation very, very much. And uh, I would love to do this again in person as often as possible. But even if it's just uh, we do a, a conversation over Skype or something to talk more, because there's there's so many interesting facets to to your story that I would love to get into that we just didn't have time today. But um, but as far as I'm concerned, I I very much hope this won't be your last stop on the podcast. Oh, definitely not. And I really appreciate you having me on, uh, Martin. This was this was awesome. This was an absolute honor, especially as you know, a longtime listener of of the show. Started with the very first episode. <laughs> um, yeah, it's 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 been great. Thank you. You actually did. You know what? I I nearly forgot that, but uh, you you literally and and you didn't just go back and listen to the first episode. You actually listened <laughs> the the week it came out, which. Uh, you know, I, I realize I now have a chance to say it. That meant so much to me because, because like any, like putting out a book or something, putting out a podcast, I have no idea if, <laughs> if anybody's right. going to listen to it or if they're going to care. And you actually listened to that first episode when it came out and you sent me this very nice email with these really nice, uh, kind words. And even just that, it, it, it was, it, it's a very powerful thing. Like that's enough to get me to keep doing it. And so, you know. Uh, that, and so whether you know it or not, in no small part, your encouragement helped me get to, you know, on my way to, to this point, uh, approaching 200 episodes. Which is amazing. I mean, congratulations. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was my pleasure. Like it was, it's, it's genuinely awesome to listen to, you know, your podcast, you know, and just, 
I, I think you've got like a great radio voice. Um, and so it's just, it, it, and even especially like as somebody who's not really that interested in things like wrestling, um, <laughs> the wrestling podcast, like the guests you had were just fascinating like that. That stuff was totally great. So, so yeah, I mean, kudos to you for putting together a really great show. Well, I appreciate that very much. But again, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for uh, making time to be on the show My during pleasure. a little quick, quick trip to Vegas. And uh, all the best luck in the world with your book. But I know, I, I, I genuinely know that it's, it's, uh, it's going to do well. Thank you. And there you have it. There you have it. That was, that was my conversation with newly published author and my friend, Michael Welker. How great is Michael? How, how just, I, I told you he's, he's, he's smart, he's bright, uh, and he's clearly uh, wonderfully articulate, and boy, does he do great on a podcast. He should, I, he should quite honestly, he should be doing his own show because I would love to, to, to sit and listen to him every week talk about whatever he chooses to talk about. Also, just as a reminder, if you didn't take my advice at the beginning uh, and go to Amazon.com, then take a moment to do that now. At this point, you really don't even have to finish listening because I, I don't have much. I don't I really don't have much else to say. So uh, you know, you could pause the show. I, I'm sure there's only a few minutes left anyway. Um, so just pause the show and go to Amazon.com and get yourself a copy of Michael's book, Blockbuster Blueprint. If you're not, I, I, I can't even imagine that you wouldn't want to buy his book after listening to that conversation. I promise you, you won't regret it. Uh, anyway, I guess that's going to do it for this week. I, yeah, I should, I'm going to go and wrap this up. That way you can just go get Michael's book because the more I, I feel like the longer I talk, the more I'm holding this up for you. So, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. Uh, that's going to do it for this week's episode. I want to thank again, my friend, uh, Michael Welker, author of Blockbuster Blueprint for, for going way, way, way out of his way to come down to Las Vegas, <laughs> Las Vegas, listen to me, to Las Vegas to visit the illustrious Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour Studios uh, and record the show in person, which was actually something that he said was very important to him. He didn't want to do a, he didn't want to call on a call into the show. He wanted to have a, a face-to-face conversation. So I greatly appreciate Michael going out of his way to do that. And I also want to thank all of you for listening, especially you as K. Murphy, because uh, I'm sure that uh, you're, again, somewhere in a, in a lovely hiking trail uh, walking your dog with your headphones on, uh, listening to two of your your former students talk about writing and storytelling and, and publishing, and uh, truly, I, I hope you're I, I hope you're feeling as proud as as you very much should because, uh, quite frankly, that's a, it's a pretty amazing legacy, and uh, and I, I know Michael and I are both very very grateful to have uh, to have to, to have you in our lives. So so thank you, Kay. Thank all of you for listening. And until next time, I will see you on the other side.